The following episode contains subject matter that may be triggering for some people, including non-graphic mentions of murder, suicide, racism, abuse, or sexual assault, and may contain foul language. This episode is presented in as accurate a manner as possible for educational purposes with the intention of raising awareness of the cases mentioned. It is not intended to make accusations, only to point out data patterns. If you have information on any of these cases, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477 or visit canadiancrimestoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. Don't stay silent. Your information might save a life. As we've seen, Northern British Columbia is definitely the type of place where someone can go missing. Hikers, campers, Bigfoot and UFO hunters. In 2020, British Columbia registered 12,400 missing persons cases, 40% of the cases for the entire country. Many of these are totally innocent and are solved within hours or days. Someone gets lost on their way to or from a campsite or takes a wrong turn on one of the many logging roads in the area. About 89% of the cases of missing adults fall into this category. The RCMP has no answers for why British Columbia has such a high percentage of missing people compared to the rest of the country, though the topography is probably a contributing factor. There are many unmarked logging or service roads, little cell reception, many bodies of water, and the entire area is heavily forested and dotted with mountains, hills, and in general, rough terrain. Of the 7,000 people still missing since they started keeping records of such things, about 2,400 went missing in BC and still haven't been found. But usually it's individuals that vanish. What happens when it's an entire family? How can four people go missing all at once without a trace? It's the type of thing that only seems to happen on the Highway of Tears. Doreen and Ronnie Jack were a young couple hard on their luck. Only 26 years old, they'd fallen on hard times after Ronnie lost his job due to a back injury. The type of person who had counted on blue-collar work to make a living, the blow hit hard. He didn't have the experience or the education to take on other work, and the subsidies they got from the government just weren't enough to make ends meet. Depressed, Ronnie took to drinking too much as a way to cope with his problems. Doreen was a stay-at-home mom trying to keep things together until Ronnie found work again. They had two children, Ryan and Russell. Russell was nine, but Ryan was only four, not even in school yet. Through the hard times, Doreen and Ronnie leaned on his extended family. He was one of six children with many aunts, uncles, and cousins who did their best to help the young family out when they could. Doreen and Ronnie had grown up together, so she was a fixture in the family, even though they hadn't become a couple until they were adults. Doreen's family, however, was little help. The eldest of three, Doreen had tried to protect her sisters from their alcoholic father after their mother walked out. A violent man, he was known to shoot at his daughters before locking them out of the house to spend nights in the cold, and allowed his friends to take sexual liberties with the girls. When they were sent away to residential school, the abuse only continued. 
Thankfully, the school closed down when Doreen was 13, but it wasn't enough to spare her from more sexual assault. At 17, she was raped by another student and became pregnant. Doreen never reported the assault. To quote her sister Marlene, who goes by Maria, in a racist town, how can you? The rape and subsequent pregnancy caused her relationship with Ronnie to fizzle out. But by 1983, Doreen was at rock bottom. She'd been living with her sisters and father who had continued his abusive behavior. He also remarried and his new wife was equally spiteful. When he died of cancer in 1983, the girls found themselves without a safe place to live and thus tried to find their mother only to be rejected in the cruelest way possible. That day finally broke down Doreen's emotional walls and she crumbled. Thankfully, she wasn't alone. She still had her sisters, and at some point in the previous year, her relationship with Ronnie rekindled. His family welcomed her and her son into their home. Though not legally married, they had a strong relationship and lived as a common-law couple. Doreen was eager to help her mother-in-law around the house, perhaps trying to earn her keep after so many years of hardship, but also eager to have a supportive mother figure in her life for the first time. Mabel Jack, Ronnie's mother, recalled that she was friendly and gentle, always eager to help, and had an excellent sense of humor and loved to laugh. A year after moving in together, their second son, Ryan, was born. One of Doreen and Ronnie's favorite things to do was to go for drives, especially in the big commercial trucks used by many of the companies in the area. By 1989, however, they no longer had their own car. They'd moved to a shady part of Prince George in the hope of finding work, but so far it hadn't panned out. Ronnie was increasingly in debt to family and friends and growing desperate. He spent his nights at the First Leader pub, drinking away his sorrows with what little cash he had on hand. On the evening of August 2nd, 1989, he ended up chatting about his woes to a stranger who offered him a job at a logging camp. Even better, there was an opening in the canteen where Doreen could work as a cook. Ronnie shook his head, pointing out that he didn't have a car. He had no way to get to the camp, which was about an hour away. Well, I'm heading back myself tonight so you can ride with me, but you have to go tonight because the job starts tomorrow, said the stranger. A little tipsy and maybe a little overexcited, Ronnie agreed. The two of them got into the stranger's pickup and drove the four blocks to the Jack home. When they arrived, Ronnie's cousin was there visiting with Doreen. Ronnie told them the good news. He had a job and so did Doreen. Quickly excusing himself, he called his brother around 11.15 p.m. to see if he could take Ryan and Russell while they were away, but it didn't work out. No matter, said the stranger, the camp was remote and had a lot of families living on site, so daycare was available. Doreen and Ronnie hurriedly packed overnight bags for themselves and their sons with help from Ronnie's cousin. At some point, Doreen's youngest sister, Lorraine, who lived just a few doors down, stopped by to see if Doreen could babysit the next day. But when she saw the chaos inside the house, she left without knocking on the door. She never saw the mysterious stranger who offered her sister a job and didn't find out until much later what had happened. At 1.15 a.m., Ronnie paused long enough to call his parents before running out the door. When his mother answered the phone, convinced it was some kind of emergency, he reassured her. She bit back her doubts, knowing how much he wanted to work and how much the family needed this job. But as he hung up, he left her with one last joking statement. If I don't come back, look for me. 
that was the last anyone heard from the Jack family. Russell, Doreen, Ryan, and Ronnie packed up and got in the stranger's car, waving goodbye to Ronnie's cousin. Sometime between the 25th and 26th of August, Mabel Jack reported them missing when they didn't return for Russell to start school. She had no contact for them at the logging camp and didn't even know specifically where they were going, just a rough idea. The RCMP searched the home and interviewed Mabel, but nothing really looked amiss. It was clear that they were intending to return at some point since the majority of their possessions were left behind, but that was all. On the 29th, a media alert was issued, but the information was inaccurate and dismissive, getting details wrong, like saying Ronnie spoke to his father, not his mother, and ending with, quote, it was possible he found further employment and hasn't bothered to phone home, end quote. The cousin who helped them pack wasn't aware Ronnie and his family were missing until weeks later. He provided the police with their only description of the stranger and his car, but for whatever reason, the police later declared the information unreliable. Considering the composite sketch from this information looks more like Sasquatch than an actual human kidnapper, I'm going to say that was probably a good move on their part. But despite this, it's the only description we have to work with. The RCMP doesn't seem to have been terribly invested in the search, even erroneously reporting the family as found on September 7th. They later retracted this, calling it a, quote, miscommunication. But I'm not sure how you can, oops, not really, find a family of four. Mabel moved into Ronnie and Doreen's home, setting up a base camp for the search in their living room. They managed the search themselves until mid to late October, when snow made searching impossible. Loreen and especially Maria threw themselves into the hunt. After several months with no news, Mabel and her husband contacted the RCMP for an update only to discover the case had been closed when they were accidentally reported found. So the RCMP lost months of investigative time over the winter. The case was duly reopened, but still nothing happened. Mabel began giving media interviews, trying to get the word out about the case and drum up any possible clues about her missing son. In February, Crime Stoppers got involved in the case, and in the early 1990s, they released a reenactment of the disappearance in the hope that someone might find it familiar. However, the clip was never aired locally in the Prince George or surrounding region, making the effort almost worthless. The little news coverage there was didn't extend beyond local TV, radio, and small town newspapers. For six years, the case sat dormant with no leads and no apparent legwork done by authorities. On February 28, 1996, an anonymous mail caller telephoned the Vanderhoof RCMP detachment, stating the Jack family was buried just outside a local ranch. Vanderhoof is another small town off Highway 16, a little more than an hour west of Prince George. Searchers were dispatched, but no physical evidence was found. Investigators discovered there had been a party at the location about a month earlier, but not all the partygoers could be found after the fact, and those the police did contact didn't have any information of note. Once again, the Jack family fell off the radar. In the early 2000s, interest was rekindled, partially due to the efforts of several major crimes units working in Canada, as well as the efforts of the Jack family and those fighting on behalf of the missing and murdered Indigenous women along Highway 16. 
Because Doreen Jack was traveling with her family, she doesn't meet the criteria of the EPANA investigation, which, okay, that's fair. However, there has been almost no movement in this case since 1989. Four people vanished without a trace, never to be seen or heard from again, and all the RCMP has to say about it is that they, quote, don't want to speculate and haven't ruled out foul play. In 2017, Maria spoke to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry Hearings in Smithers, British Columbia. I haven't been able to find any info on Doreen or Ronnie's heritage other than they were First Nations, which again, just throws a shadow over the lack of press and attention the RCMP have given this case. Finally, in 2019, there was an excavation and a three-day search just south of Vanderhoof, but nothing came of it. In 2020, age-progressed photos of the family were released. You can find those linked in the show notes. In the last decade or so, Maria has taken up the mantle of searching for her sister. I'm not positive on this, but I believe Ronnie's parents have since passed away as they aren't mentioned in the more recent articles. Maria has her own theories on what happened to her sister and her family, suspecting that the stranger in the pub was Bobby Jack Fowler, whom we discussed in episode three. There's no proof one way or the other, but the RCMP told her that if she went to the media, they would stop keeping her informed of their progress. When that progress amounted to absolutely nothing, however, she decided to cut her losses and has been doing everything in her power to find her sister, giving media interviews, starting a Facebook page, again linked in the show notes, and regularly hassling the RCMP to find out what they're doing about the case. There are a few theories about what happened to the Jack family. One of the more common ideas is that there was some kind of road accident and the car went off the highway perhaps tumbling down the side of a hill or mountain and into the river that runs alongside it. If Maria is correct, then Bobby Jack Fowler would have been targeting Doreen, not Ronnie. Doreen wasn't at the bar that night, and it's unlikely that a serial rapist would take a woman, her husband, and her two kids. He'd have to overpower Ronnie and silence the kids before he could do anything, and based on his previous MO, I feel like that's just too much effort for him. Rapists usually want the fastest, easiest target they can get. Could he have been bolder nearly a decade down the line from Gail, Pam, and Colleen? Maybe, but I still don't buy it personally. His preferred victims were white and between the ages of 15 and 25. It's unlikely he would suddenly target a dark-haired native woman at the top end of his age preference. Lastly, the predator could have been after the Jack children, not Ronnie and Darlene. This is another one that I find unlikely just because of how Ronnie and the stranger met and connected. If you're looking for kids, you don't do it in a dive bar that's considered, quote, one of the least reputable places in the city where no one respectable goes. And if all he wanted was to rob them, why pick someone who's down on his luck, in debt, and comes with a wife and two kids as baggage? None of it makes sense. In all honesty, my gut is telling me that the car accident is the most likely scenario, and the Jack family have never been found because, well, the people who should have been looking for them just didn't. It's a lot of hard terrain to cover. I feel like if someone were to try searching today with drones, maybe satellite images, they would have a lot more luck. 
but for all we know, the car could be at the bottom of a river or lake and might not be found for another 20 years when it's accidentally dredged up for a construction project or something. But none of that excuses the fact that the RCMP failed to do a sufficient search or allocate resources when they were first reported missing, that the media failed to cover the case despite continual mentions of other crimes and missing persons in the region at the same time, and by never labeling the case as foul play suspected. It's never been marked as a high priority or been assigned to a major crimes unit. And that's why I feel so divided in thinking that the most likely solution here is a car accident. Obvious answer, yes, but it also stops this case from getting the attention it deserves. There has to be some kind of in-between where we can recognize that missing people are in imminent danger, even if it's possible that they weren't abducted. Or maybe we could do the obvious and take missing persons reports more seriously instead of dismissing them out of hand as Oh, I guess they just wandered off. I highly encourage you to visit the show notes for this episode where I link all of my sources. There's some really good ones this time with those age-progressed photos, a map of some of the searches, as well as other information that I couldn't include in this episode, so please check them out. We can't let an entire family be forgotten on the Highway of Tears. The Ghosts of Highway 16 is a production of Not Magic Studios and is intended for educational purposes and to raise awareness of crime, especially those involving missing and murdered Indigenous women. If you have any information on the cases presented, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477 or visit CanadianCrimeStoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. If you would like more information on this episode or any of the cases presented in this series, please visit 16ghosts.com for photos, sources, and a full transcript of this and every other episode. If you would like to support the podcast, please share it with friends. Any financial contributions should go to the Indigenous charity of your choice. For a list of recommendations, please visit our website. Thank you for listening.